was in a very Hollywood moment. My brother raced in and heard my screaming and um, and pulled the chair out of his hand about that far before it hit my temple. So I knew that I needed to leave very, very quickly. And all the things that I thought would be so important to take in the heat of the moment, I ran past and um, ran straight into the bathroom and um, just opened the cabinet and saw my toothbrush and grabbed it and ran. That's Kate Austin. She's the founder and CEO of hygiene essential NGO Pinchapoo, short for Pincher Shampoo. And she's talking about the origin of her journey that saw her become Australia's largest provider of hygiene essentials. Now be warned, the next part of the story gets slightly graphic. So Pinchapoo started um, at a pretty awful time in my life as a teenager when I was um, 15. I uh, went through a very bad domestic violence situation and had to escape very quickly. Um, I was experiencing all kinds of abuse at the hands of both of my parents and one night things escalated um, quite quite heavily to a point where um, I had some broken bones and needed to, uh, to be able to fend my dad off and jumped up onto my bed to be able to use the strength that I still had in my feet to fight him off. And, then he picked up a cast iron chair and went to put it through my skull. That moment came to shape Kate's life. Armed with only a clothes on her back and her toothbrush, she set about trying to make a life for herself. Even at the time, I thought it was odd that that was the thing that I, that I thought to take, but that instinct is so real in that moment where you just, you just know what you need and it's not the superficial things you think are important. So. That toothbrush, that toothbrush, you know, helped me feel human again on the other end. And, and at the time, I didn't know what that other end looked like. I spent the next two years getting through high school um, couch surfing um, and, and using up a lot of favours, sleeping on a lot of floors and a lot of mums, adopted mums looking after me and, and taking me in and getting me through school, which was pretty amazing. You know, yes, I had my toothbrush, but I didn't have anything else that helped me um, to, to be the best version of me, to be able to connect with the world in the same way that I was before. So I went from being a very confident girl, like I am um, again now, to to being really quite withdrawn from all of my friends and from activities and you know I was singing in a band and had lead roles in plays and they were all things that I kind of I pulled away from. Those feelings followed Kate until the birth of her first child where she suffered from severe anxiety, PTSD, psychosis and self-harm. This long list of mental health buzzwords and that was just a terrifying journey and there were days where I would sit and watch the second hand on my watch just click around and think to myself if I could get to the next 12 I'd be going pretty well. But on one of those dark days I was having a shower and uh, washing my hair with a, a bottle of shampoo that I'd pinched a couple of uh, weekends ago and I was in the shower and just kind of mindlessly washing my hair and had what I describe as a lightning bolt moment where I just kind of awoke from this coma that I'd been living in and, and this, this iron rod of purpose went right through the centre of my being and I just went, what if? What if, with these pinched products, she could get some things together to help people escaping domestic violence like herself? Came running out of the shower, stuck naked, dripping wet and uh, was screaming pinch-a-poo and I knew that it was going to be pinch-a-poo straight away, I really did. Now, um, going from helping one local organisation to being the biggest 
national provider, uh, not-for-profit provider of personal hygiene products in Australia. Yeah, the journey's been pretty nuts, but from a pretty dark place to a pretty special journey, really. But it wasn't long until Kate found out the true scale of the problem at hand in Australia. My heart was really in domestic violence. Um, that was my situation and I, and I could feel that. I felt that it was such a relatable pain. Um, but it wasn't long before on the journey I realised how many more people actually needed our help and how we really didn't need to have a qualification process on it and we were getting the product and we had the momentum to be able to say yes to everybody. So it really became our mantra to say yes to everybody in every situation of need. So men, women and children equally. So yeah, so I think domestic violence to start with, uh, yeah, into homelessness and, and now we're working with, you know, even hospitals and in, in a real clinical space as well and people are really... I think after a very long time selling the story, just really starting to buy in the importance that, that hygiene plays or the access to hygiene plays um, in our day-to-day -day life. And, you know, that hygiene poverty is a real problem in this country that we're not talking about. It is a sobering statistic. One in eight Aussie adults are living in poverty, on below half the median wage and often going without. Yeah, one in six Australians go without access to personal hygiene products. So not one in six families, one in six Australians. It's an astonishing number. When you have $50 left to feed your family and you're working through the supermarket, you're not filling your trolley up with pads, tampons, deodorants, razors, whatever it is. You're filling bellies in your family and that's what you have to do. When you see those those food poverty statistics, you know, hygiene poverty directly relates. So. It's, it's alarming. It's an alarming number in Victoria, one in six. That realisation hit harder during the bushfires, when thousands of families found themselves in need during evacuation from regional areas. Desperate efforts are being made to get those in smaller communities which have been cut off by the fires and get them to safety. Smoked out. Terrible. I've had enough of it and I want to get away from the smoke. If you can leave, you must leave. So in the bushfires, this year um, we did the Gippsland bushfires, um, we did 27,000 hygiene packs in just under two weeks, which was just crazy and, the, and the, the contrast in environments, you know, we had everybody wanted to help and everybody wanted to be hands-on. We had like 100 people in this space that's now got three people in it, you know, um, to, you know, to, to sending everyone to working at home on their own and so... Um, both those outcomes were magical, but those those packs were going to evacuation centres to people who had lost it all, to people who were going into um, you know housing, and we're still working with those communities that are only now just going into housing. And um, you know, in the media, it's disappeared out of the media. It doesn't mean that the issues disappeared. So there's a lot of people only just now going into modular housing, and so still setting up those bathrooms and and taking that cost away for families. And so from one emergency to another. Kate found herself at the pointy end of the pandemic, with families across the country losing significant income, and her and her band of Pinchapoo volunteers trying to catch those families that fell through the gaps. We've got all these, we've got these citrus hand creams down here. Yeah, we've got 10,000 of them. Yeah, let's get a hand cream in there. Yep. You have to think quick because if you're going to keep your head above the water and keep doing what it is that you seek to do and that's to, to provide personal hygiene products for people in need we knew there was going to be so many more people in need um, during the pandemic so we couldn't close the doors we couldn't 
you know, we couldn't shut things down. So we thought really quickly and we shipped all of our, um, you know, normally manic on-site production um, to off-site production. And we had all our team turn their living rooms into to warehouses and, you know, and just continued to, you know, fill their days doing what they love to do here, but, you know, from the comfort of their own home. So being able to keep up with the almost 50% rise in demand, to be able to do that with a Rhonda's working from home um, nationally, is, but is, it's magic. I don't even know what else to say. It's really, it's been a magical thing to witness. So we, we just adapted quickly. And I think a lot of organisations threw their hands up and went, we don't know what to do. And it was the same in the bushfires. It was, we don't know what to do. Nobody had a manual for this at all. We just, you just had to work it out. So I think we did a good job doing a good job. We're not out of it yet, but yeah. After the many families and individuals that they found themselves helping, there seemed to be a particular group of people that they saw were in need more frequently. Yeah, I think those vulnerable groups became so much more visible and international students was was the biggest one for us. Um, and it's probably taken up a good 40% of, of the aid that we've done during that time. So we've provided for 150,000 people during the pandemic, which is a crazy number, um, but yeah, a good 40% of our international students who were really left with nothing, no support, no, you know, couldn't get home to families. I mean, it's, it's an unimaginable thing. And, and hygiene is the first thing to go when you have to feed your belly. So um, yeah, it was, a, it was a huge component of that. And then, and also finding ways to, to get to people who were newly disadvantaged or newly struggling, who weren't necessarily fitting into the system, so to speak, or qualifying for help through the government, um, you know, to so get into schools and, and hospitals and social workers and outreach workers and even police, you know, who were doing welfare checks on people, just, um, you know, allowing that engagement to happen to say, you know, we're thinking of you, what do you need and what are your personal needs? Before the second full lockdown of Melbourne, the government locked down 3,000 Melbourne residents across multiple high-rise towers. Those residents also happen to be part of Melbourne's most disadvantaged. 3,000 people remain under lockdown in nine public housing towers in Melbourne. Due to yeah, the towers was an interesting one. I think our plight as an organisation had never been more highlighted than it was in that moment. and. You know, the shock of that for those people in, in housing, the most vulnerable people that we have in this city, the most culturally diverse, the most, you know, disadvantaged, you know, all of those things and and their very varying needs to just lock everyone down without warning was an epic thing to do. But for us, it gave us such a great visibility on where our government sits on on our issue that we're trying to bring to light. And when all of those apartments and, and buildings were provided with essential aid, there wasn't even a bar of soap to be seen in a pandemic. So they were provided, you know, with your rice, your pasta, your canned tomatoes, you know, your, your stables, which was great. Feeding people is obviously important, but even in a pandemic, a bar of soap was not deemed as an essential item. So within hours of that happening, we had a couple of thousand packs down there. But it was really a time for us to look at it and go, you know what? Something, some conversation has to be had here because the government can make these giant decisions, but it's the flow down from that, that you know the people like us are picking up those pieces and it's so frustrating. Which begs the question, how was this allowed to happen in the first place? And why does an organisation like Kate's need to exist even before the pandemic? Like any government, 
they're, they people please. So what's a red hot topic? Period poverty, right? So they've poured millions of dollars fixing, a, you know, a 2% of the issue, one piece of the pie. And so providing um, free sanitary stuff to products to um, girls in all schools in Victoria, which is amazing, right? It's an, it's an amazing initiative and it's going to be able to allow girls to confidently manage their periods at school. But it's not looking at things holistically, you know. We, that's not the only product that's left out of a trolley and it frustrates me to no end. They've done it because it's a popular topic and I, I had um, an interesting little hashtag search last night about period poverty and, you, and uh, on Instagram and, you know, you type in period poverty and it will come up 60,000 plus posts. If you type in hygiene poverty, it comes up fewer than 100. And I guarantee you there's fewer than 100 of the ones that we've posted. So it's, it's really, I always say the food equivalent is like saying banana poverty, you know what I mean? Like it's one piece of the pie and, and the government need to start looking at the issue and the solution holistically and and providing pads and tampons is, is a great step. But I think that money could have been invested in a, in a much more rounded out solution. But they're very good at putting money into the end of the issue. So, you know, we pour millions of into, into mental health and we pour millions into you know, housing and we pour millions into all of these kind of end causes rather than looking at, you know, why, and it's a great saying, why people are jumping in the river rather than dragging them out all the time. Let's stop dragging them out. Let's talk about why they're jumping in. So, you know, self-esteem, self-worth, dignity, you know, connection to the world and anything that inhibits that, you know, you would think is directly relatable to to mental health issues. So there's just some conversations that need to be had and, and they need to have a far more open mind and we need to own the issues that we have, all the issues we have in the country. It's not just, you know, it's not just hygiene poverty. But with the need of hygiene essentials up by 50% for Kate's organisation alone during lockdown, having supplied over 1 million products since March this year, it's been a long and arduous year for her and her band of volunteers. But those conversations that Kate talks about needing to be had with the government seem to be on the horizon and coming from another group of volunteers within the state. So the major thing which we found is uh, the, the communication gap and uh, the education, I think. The, the local governments and the federal governments, they have provided a lot of um, support to the uh, general public, but people don't have a awareness how to avail those kind of uh, you know, facilities. I can say, and uh, some people are not tech savvy. Everything is like online nowadays, and they want to physically go to the government office to get this thing happen, but the offices are closed or they're working on a less capacity. So that, that's a major gap which we have found. Gurinder Singh is the director of United Sikhs in Australia and New Zealand, an organization that came to light through also helping Australians throughout disasters. Whether it be bushfires or pandemics, they got a lot of exposure earlier in the year when The Guardian covered their work within the community. United Six is an uh, international humanitarian human rights organization started in uh, New York, USA in 1999. So now we have like 12 chapters around the globe in each and every continent. And uh, our major work is for the human rights and advocacy. Plus on top of that, we do work on the humanitarian side of it disasters, no matter man-made or natural disasters. So at the moment, currently we are working for the COVID, which is disaster, global disaster. And in, in each and every continent, our teams are working, providing relief work to the impacted people. We serve the people who are in need and we fight for the people who are in need as well. 
Gravinda takes me through the experience the United Sikhs has had through the pandemic in the last year, trying to get food parcels in the hands of families in need. Initially, when the pandemic hit, everybody was starting lining up at the at the Centrelink office and we've seen like people are waiting there for like whole day and they, they couldn't get through because the staff was working in half of the capacity and um, with the social distancing and stuff and they have to be you know comply with those things and we started providing the meals people sitting in a row you know standing in a row for whole day plus um, the, the, the physical touch we have lost the physical touch in this pandemic and people really want to go to a community center or you know to the council office where they can physically speak with someone and you know discuss their you know options what kind of options they have and they can avail so it's it's that that's the basic and nobody was prepared for this thing you know it's pandemic when it's hit and uh, we don't have any preparation this is the first time ever i've seen in the history and we you have to be you know totally isolated from everybody and you know that's how the other issues started you know people going into depression started going into the depression and then they are in the real need when uh, somebody cannot support them, basically. And that's where United Seek stepped in. To date, they've provided thousands of meals to families across the state. We started this uh, program called Guru Nanak Free Kitchen and uh, Community Food Pantry. In the pre-pandemic, we, we started this program and uh, just to uh, you know help the people who are struggling to cook the meals and you know so especially the single parents you know they it's hard to cook the meals and you know feed their kids. So we got the data from the council and then initially started um, we started cooking probably 200 meals a week to help those people. And soon as uh, we started um, cooking the meals and then the pandemic hit and the numbers have gone to like probably five, 600 meals a week. And even after the second wave of um, this pandemic in Melbourne, especially when the outbreak happened in the aged care and the uh, hotel quarantines and this, these things has gone worse and worse day by day. The local council were unable to deal with the demand, lacking the ability to provide these meals on the scale needed. That's where the United Sikhs stepped in. With their large volume of volunteers from the Sikh community, they were able to partner with the local council and get food to those in need. So we are roughly, at this stage, we're cooking like seven to 800 meals a week. They don't have the uh, structure in place where they can cook the meals in this much amount of numbers and then, you know, start distributing it. So that's how we kicked in and we started cooking the meals and, you know, we handing over to the council and council got a database where they are, you know, distributing the meals. So that's the initial thing which they need. And then the face masks came in and then we have volunteers starting, you know, sewing the face masks at home, you know, so we started distributing the face masks. But such as with Kate Austin and her hygiene essentials, Govinda began wondering why volunteers became the sole means of support for large swathes of the community, so much so that they now have questions. We will be uh, gathering a data from different volunteers and different uh, project coordinators, like, you know, what kind of, you know, experience they had in this pandemic. And based on that, uh, we will be having a tough questions with the councils and with the member parliaments in this area. So, you know, how the government is going to cope up for future. So we have to be pre-prepared, at least. You never know what's going to happen in the future, but yeah, we, we need these kind of system in place. If something happens, so you know, we don't have to wait for other NGOs or other organizations or other volunteers to come in. You know, then uh, the government should come up with some some sort of concrete plan. Both NGOs have worked tirelessly over the last year, whether it be providing one million hygiene essentials, hundreds of thousands of food parcels, or even helping cover financial costs. These two NGOs that run purely on volunteers 
have not only helped families that have slipped through the cracks in government policy, but are now also set on trying to ask how this was allowed to happen. In the meantime, Kate and Gravinda, along with the hundreds of volunteers within their communities, will carry on doing what they can to help.